Please turn with me in scripture to the book of Revelation, chapter 4. Revelation, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. After these things I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. In the first verse, a voice which I heard was like a trumpet speaking with me, saying, Come up here, and I will show you things which must take place after this. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. And he who sat there was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and on the thrones I saw twenty-four elders sitting, clothed in white robes, and they had crowns of gold on their heads. And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Before the throne there was a sea of glass, like a crystal. And in the midst of the throne and around the throne were four living creatures full of eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion, the second living creature like a calf, the third living creature had a face like a man, and the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within, and they do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they exist and were created. Last week, we concluded the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation. I think now would be a good time for us to take a step back and look at the bigger picture of Revelation and ask again what it's about. Because again, we can get bogged down in the details and lose the very point at which the Lord is communicating to us in this. Well, we've already seen that this book is all about the revelation of Jesus Christ to his church. And as we've already seen, both in the description of Christ that we have in chapter 1 and also reiterated at times throughout the seven letters to the seven churches, we have these themes of what is being revealed about Christ, these attributes of Christ that are given to us. He is, for instance, the first and the last. He is also the one with the two-edged sword. And he's also the one with the eyes like the flame of fire. And if you had to sum up these things into categories, I think it would be all about his absolute life, first and last, Alpha and Omega, all the rest of it. And his sovereignty, that he reigns, he's a king, he conquers. And then above all, his holiness, eyes of a flame of fire. Just read through chapter 1, you can see... Maybe that those categories fit. It begins with the person of Christ. You know, that's so much of what we, what we proclaim when we say that we're preaching Christ. The person of Christ, who he is and what he did, the work of Christ. And that's what we have in chapter 1. In verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, a faithful witness, that's holiness. The firstborn from the dead, that's his absolute life. 
and the ruler over the kings of the earth. That's his sovereignty. And then also we find these things in his work, in our salvation. To him who loved us, holiness in terms of love and also sovereignty because he chooses those whom he loves. And washed us from our sins in his own blood. Holiness and also absolute life because I don't, I can't do that. I couldn't begin to wash someone in my blood because I don't have sufficient life. I would die trying. But Christ in his absolute infinite life can do such things. Washed us. And that, uh, in his own blood and also in terms of what he's made of us then in verse 6. He's made us kings and priests. And that's the interesting part. And that's the thing I think I'd like to bring before us for consideration today. It is not only that Christ is possessed of absolute life and that he is sovereign and that he is holy, but that these things are going to be given to his people as well. He is going to give us eternal life. He is going to make us to reign with him. And he's going to make us holy just like him. Kings and priests to our God. And we shall reign. That's what it says not only in, in uh, we mentioned this in, in uh, chapter 1, but it's also said in Revelation 5.10. You've made us kings and priests to our God and we shall reign on the earth. So the whole book is about how Christ lives and reigns and is holy and about how we shall live and reign and be holy. But, of course, there's a subplot to Revelation. And the subplot is that the church doesn't always seem to realize this. Or if she does, she's always in danger of forgetting it. Because for the most part, she's fixating on her present situation in this world of opposition and persecution and suffering and of death. Not to mention her own grievous sin and error. That's the thing she's thinking about. Now, it's not that these things aren't real. We remember that Christ in the letters to the churches in chapter 2 and 3, he often has to be brutally honest. He has to set the truth before them because they're not even, they're not grasping how bad their situation is. They're blind to their own faults in these ways. They're not making it up then. The situation is, if anything, worse than what we think it is in the world. Worse. Our own sin is worse. Our own belief, our theology isn't as good as we think it is. It's all too real. And as the book goes on, the circumstances are going to continue on like that. There's no relief in the near term. And in fact, it may even get worse. But the, pro- the, the, the solution to this problem is that they need to look and be reminded who Christ is in all of his absolute life, his absolute sovereignty, his perfect holiness. And moreover, they need to understand that no matter how bad things look at the moment, soon enough those things shall be theirs as well. Just as Christ, it didn't look like he was going to have that absolute life when he was dying on the cross and when he was buried in the tomb, but sure enough, soon enough he did. It didn't look like he was going to reign when he was being carried away in in chains to be tortured. But sure enough, soon enough he will. And when the load of our sin was put upon him, it didn't look like that we were going to be made holy through Christ. But we know that's true as well. Soon enough. So, having spoken then in these the letters to the churches, to these weak, sinful churches, some on death's doorstep, 
Now he begins to talk about what lies ahead, but before he begins, he once again goes to these larger themes. Christ reigns. Christ is holy. We reign, and we are going to be holy. There's no doubt about these things. Notice the language, by the way, that we see as we're introduced to this in Revelation 4.1. I will show you the things which must take place after this, which is like the very first book, the first verse of the book. These things which must shortly take place. It's not in any doubt. It's not something that's contingent. It's not a possibility that might happen or might not happen. These things must take place. Appearances aside, Christ is holy and must reign on this earth. And believe it or not, we shall be holy and we shall reign with him. So these three points. Christ reigns. Christ is holy. And so shall we be. Christ reigns, Christ is holy, and so shall we be. We begin with the first, that Christ reigns. Now we see this, of course, throughout, but perhaps particularly in verse 2. Immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne set in heaven, and one sat on the throne. Speaking of the sovereignty of God, the fact that he reigns, he sits upon the throne. Now, unlike some other things in Scripture, the data, the places we could go to learn about God's sovereignty is extensive. It's not just a few places. Even if something is supported by just one verse, we, of course, we know that it's perfectly true because every last word in the Scripture is perfectly true. But with God's sovereignty, we'd be here quite literally all day going through these things because it's a basic attribute of who God is. Most of us know uh, or have heard the, the things in the Westminster Confession 2.1, which have the, the, what I would call the philosophical attributes of God. And they're, of course, very true. But we can't forget about the next paragraph, 2.2, which has more of these revelation sorts of attributes. And it says, God hath all life, glory. You see that absolute life. He hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of itself, and is alone and into himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creature which he has made, not driving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory by them and upon them. He alone is the fountain of all being, and hath most sovereign dominion over them to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatever he pleases. He is completely and utterly sovereign over everything. He's sovereign, first of all, as being the creator. You you think of these things, creation, providence, and redemption. He is sovereign in all of these things. He is sovereign, first of all, because he's the creator of all things. And that's what we have at the last chapter of this brief, uh, last verse of this brief chapter. You are worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. That's the rationale. You can rule over things because you are the creator, and by your will they existed and were created. So he's sovereign over creation. And he's sovereign over providence. Another of the proof texts for it would be in Daniel. You know that um, besides Isaiah being very much uh, echoed and reflected in the things in Revelation, the language and all the things that are being taught in it, it's also true with Daniel. And so the uh, other proof text besides Revelation chapter 4 for God's sovereignty is in chapter in, is in Daniel chapter four, and you remember the story of Nebuchadnezzar and li- being lifted up in his pride, 
and him being warned by God in a, in a dream, interpreted by Daniel, that he needs to humble himself, or the Lord will demonstrate the fact that he is sovereign and put him down. And what it says in Daniel 4.25, until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, because you, you're going to learn that. You need to know that. Don't deceive yourself. He rules in the kingdom of men. And then in verses 34 and 35, Nebuchadnezzar himself speaks, And at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my understanding returned to me. He was restored to his previous situation. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever, for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? His sovereignty in providence is absolute. All the kingdoms of the earth, all the inhabitants of the earth, everything that everyone ever does is under and underneath the hand of the sovereign God. No one can restrain his will. No one can keep him from doing that which he pleases to do. He is sovereign in providence. And thirdly, he's sovereign in redemption. Creation, providence, and redemption. And that's sometimes, strangely, the one point at which Christians are hesitant to say that he's sovereign. We're okay with his sovereignty over creation. We're okay with his sovereignty and providence. But strangely, we hesitate and don't want to say that he's sovereign over the eternal destinies of people. He's not really sovereign over who goes to heaven and who doesn't. But that's strange, to say the least. In fact, if anything, in the Bible, it's this kind of sovereignty that is most, most emphasized. Because think about it. There, if, if he only has sovereignty over what happens here, If he can make life better or worse for us here, if he has control over events that happen here, well, secular kings have that kind of ability, don't they? They have that kind of sovereignty. What, does that really matter compared to who goes to heaven and who doesn't? That's the kind of sovereignty that's important to have. That's the kind of sovereignty that we, if we're in a situation of the churches, those seven churches that are suffering... And we are in that situation of those who are being opposed by the world and the flesh and the devil. We need the kind of sovereignty that extends into eternity. And that's precisely the kind of sovereignty the Bible declares that God has. Ephesians 1.11 In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. We have obtained an inheritance, meaning we become Christians, Because he's predestined according to the counsel of his will, not according to ours. It doesn't mean, of course, that we don't want to have salvation. Of course we do. But the initiative, but the plan, but the working is according to God's sovereignty. All things are under his hand and most particularly the salvation of his people. So that Ephesians 1 goes on, or previously it said, verse 5, Just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. That's what's being emphasized. He has sovereignty over the destiny 
of his people and praise God that he does. Now, he's sovereign over creation, providence, and redemption. And one of the things we find in Revelation chapter 4 is that his sovereignty is necessary. As going back to the text in, in chapter 1, verse 1, it's the things that must happen. In Revelation 4, verse 1, the things that must happen. And if one of the things that must happen is that God sits upon the throne. It's inevitable. It's necessary. It's something that is not in any doubt. That goes, of course, along with 1 Corinthians 15.25. It says, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. He must. It couldn't be other than that. It's part of who God is. It's part of who Jesus Christ is as the Lord. He is Lord because he is Lord. And he reigns and he must reign. And we must believe that. That sovereignty, by the way, is, again, the reason why it's necessary is because it's innate. You know, sometimes a king can, can wrest control. He isn't all that good of a person. In fact, he's maybe not even all that good of a leader. But in a, a combination of circumstances and mishaps and so forth, he can wrest power and be in charge, even though he's not so great himself. It could have happened other ways. In fact, you could look at, you could, 99 times out of 100, things might have, in our eyes, have worked out some other way. But that is not the case with God because his sovereignty is innate. You look in verse 3, and he who sat there uh, there was like a jasper and sardius stone in appearance, and there was a rainbow around the throne in appearance like an emerald. What I'm trying to say with this, is that these symbols, these elements of kingship, are not something that are being handed to him. A, a human ruler, when they're crowned, puts on these external symbols of kingly authority, the crown and the scepter, and sits on this throne and so forth. And the, the beauty and the authority that is given to him or her by these things is external. That is not the case with God. Because it says he was like a jasper and a sardius stone in appearance. The radiance and the beauty are coming from God himself. From Christ himself. He was like a jasper and a sardius stone. His sovereignty, you see, is innate. It's part of who he is. Now, why these particular stones? Again, we don't need to get bogged down in details. My understanding, for instance, that a jasper stone can be any color. You know, what color is a jasper stone? Well, it could be green, it could be brown, it could be yellow, it could be orange, it could be red, it could be blue. It could be any color in the rainbow. And moreover, we see how, in fact, there's something like a rainbow coming from that. And what it points to, I think, is the universality of his reign. That's the thing about his sovereignty. Perfect sovereignty is universal. You know, some nations have a particular color, and, and the, the sovereign of that nation would have the colors of that particular land. Well, God's reign isn't like that. It's a universal reign over all the kingdoms of the earth for now and forever in every regard and every realm. And so the only appropriate sort of color that can possibly describe this king is indeed the rainbow. So it's an innate sovereignty, therefore it's necessary, and it's over everything, creation, providence, and redemption. And his sovereignty is the only way to make sense 
of any present distress we might be under. This scene has so much in common with Daniel chapter 7. If we had more time, maybe we'd go through the exact parallels. Maybe you can do it on your own and read through Daniel chapter 7. But Daniel 7 begins with the many terrible things that are going to happen. Daniel's distressed when he receives these prophecies, when he sees these dreams. He sees all the terrible times that, that lie ahead for God's people. Opposition and persecution and blasphemy and false teaching and all the rest of it. But all, what Daniel needs to do, the thing that Daniel has to do is to keep watching. Because it says in verse 10, I watched until thrones were put in place and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool, again, the holiness of God. His throne was a fiery flame, his wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. You see, the sovereignty of God changes these things. You have to keep watching until you see God on his throne because otherwise all you're going to see is the persecutions and the blasphemies and the false teach and, and the pers- and the opposition of, of the world and the flesh and the devil but the thing is you've got to keep looking and watching till you see God seated on his throne well that's his sovereignty secondly we look at his holiness We see holiness in a couple of places here. In verse 5, And from the throne proceeded lightnings, thunderings, and voices. Seven lamps of fire were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And, you know, I I, I think that's really referring, there aren't seven different spirits of God. Seven is just a number of perfection. And it's speaking about the one Holy Spirit and all of his perfection. And the thing about the Holy Spirit is that's his name. He's the Holy Spirit. Don't forget about it. He's the spirit of holiness. His holiness is perfect. And then moreover, in verse 8, it says, The four living creatures, each having six wings, were full of eyes around and within. They do not rest day or night, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It's the testimony of these beings. Now, you probably know that this recalls a scene in Isaiah chapter 6, the famous heavenly throne room scene. And that's what the seraphim say. Now, I must admit that when, I, when you read Revelation or Isaiah chapter 6, and probably when I preached on it, I kind of assumed that there were two seraphim. But the Hebrew plural, im, doesn't mean two. Um, it's, it's indefinite. It could be any number. And there could have been any number of seraphim. But we find out from Revelation chapter 4 that there's actually four. These are these four creatures. The ones that have six wings are the very same they would seem to be as the seraphim listed in Isaiah chapter 6. Well, in both cases, they have one job, and it's the greatest job in the world. And that job is to proclaim the holiness of God. Because, you see, the thing that is most impressive the thing that most calls out to be proclaimed, not just once, not just twice, but a threefold proclamation that carries on night and day for all time 
is God's holiness. You see, other people have power, don't they? Their power isn't as great as God, that's for sure, but we can say that we're that people, relatively speaking, are powerful. Other people may have some degree of intelligence or wisdom, but holiness? No. God alone is holy. And though we know, as we're going to see, that we share in his holiness, what we need to do at the moment is to think about just how set apart, how unique God is in his holiness. What is holiness? What is it? Well, you have the two words for it in the Bible. You have the Old Testament Hebrew word, kodesh. And it means apartness or sacredness. And then you have the New Testament Greek word, hagios, set apart to God, consecrated, morally pure. It's the idea of this moral perfection that doesn't exist apart from God. It's the moral perfection that results of being set apart for God, set consecrated to God. Now, this holiness is, in some ways, the sum total of God's glory. His glory largely just consists in the proclamation and recognition of his holiness. That's why it says, for instance, in Exodus 15:11, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? God, in his, his glory is the manifestation of what he is. You know, if God had never created the universe, he would still be everything that he is. But there wouldn't be this public recognition of his glory in his creatures, right? He doesn't, he doesn't gain by creating. But when he then manifests his perfect holiness in all of his dealings with his people, in his law and in his word, and most of all in the work of redemption through Christ, and shows his holiness, that's the greatest part of his glory, his holiness. Now, People don't naturally like holiness. I don't know if you've noticed that. Natural people don't naturally like holiness. That was the way it was with the people of Israel. When God was dealing with them in the Exodus, you remember the people didn't want to talk directly to God. It says in Exodus 20:18, All the people witnessed the thunderings and the lightning flashes, the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking. And when the people saw it, they trembled and stood afar off. And they said to Moses, you speak with us and we will hear, but let not God speak with us lest we die. This holy God in all of his fiery thundering and lightnings and the smoke and the fire and his perfection, you speak with him. Let's not have to deal with this holy God. But God is holy. And if there's one thing that we need to know about him, is perfect holiness. Because once again, that's the thing that we need to recognize. You see, the world is wicked. And it's trying to bring us down. Our flesh is wicked. And it's trying to bring us down. And we often collude with it. Satan is wicked. And he most certainly is trying to bring us down. These things stand against us in their wickedness. The only thing that can possibly help is a holy God who sits upon the throne. And in his absolute, perfect 
holiness, we have hope. Every hope. And that brings us into our third point. God in Christ, of course, we know that God himself doesn't, uh, the Father doesn't have a body. And therefore, when we see someone who's sitting on a throne, it's probably speaking about Christ. Christ is sovereign. Christ is holy. And thirdly, so shall we be. We're going to share these things. Because the thing that's different Again, we didn't spend all the time, but if you were to go back and look at Isaiah chapter 6, or Daniel chapter 7, or Ezekiel 1 and 2, these, these other views of the heavenly throne room, do you know what the difference is between those things and Revelation chapter 4? The one thing, that the throne is there. The holiness of God is there. The sovereignty of God is there. The seraphim are there. These creatures that worship God and proclaim His holiness one thing that isn't there other people that are there on thrones and that's crazy around the throne verse 4 were 24 thrones and on the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white robes and they had crowns of gold on their heads if anything what we've seen up to this point in these other pictures is just how God is alone in his sovereignty and majesty and holiness. And it's almost beyond imagination to imagine that there are these human beings that are also seated with him. And yet there are not just one, but there are 24. Again, we don't want to get bogged down in the details, but I would just, as we later find out, we speak about the, uh, the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. It talks about the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. And so this is it's a representative of all the Old Testament saints and all the New Testament saints, the whole church of God represented in the, the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles is representing us, these 24 elders. And the thing is, they've got the same sort of things that God himself does. Because, first of all, they're sitting on thrones. That means that they reign now, we, this isn't the first time we've come across this. It's still amazing. It's still fresh to us. But remember in Revelation 3.21, it says, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, as I also overcame to sat down with, and sat down with my father on his throne. So if anything, the picture here isn't quite getting it. Uh, Lord in his, his perfect revelation has different ways of describing things for us to, to be able to get it. But these thrones are representing the one throne that Christ himself occupies that we sit on if we're in Christ. They reign. And in fact, towards the end of the book in Revelation 22.5, it says they shall reign forever and ever. That's an amazing thought. Christ reigns and will reign as well. And moreover, we see that they're clothed in white robes. Now, what does that mean? What does it mean that they're clothed in white robes? It means that they are holy. Just like everything about Christ himself, his hair and his clothing is purest, brilliant, white. Why? Because he is holy. Well, these saints are also clothed in white because they are holy. Just as pure and perfectly holy as Christ himself is pure and perfectly holy. Remember, he washed them himself in his own blood. 
And if we're in Christ, we have his same holiness. And then what about those crowns of gold? Well, remember I mentioned that Revelation seems to be pointing to these three things. The, ab- the absolute life of, uh, that God has, his sovereignty and his holiness. We've mentioned these latter two things. And now I think these crowns, of course, they have something to do with sovereignty as well. But I think they have to do with life, eternal life. Because that's what Revelation 2.10 said. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life, eternal life. That's the ultimate crown, isn't it? A lot of good, some crown on this earth does a lot of good, any material thing you can possibly have, any position you can have, because soon enough you're going to die, and you're not going to have it anymore. But the crown of eternal, everlasting life is something truly to be desired. And that everlasting life that Christ himself has, we can't be made eternal like him, but we can be made everlasting. And so it is the case with those who put their faith in Christ. They'll have everlasting life. And the the question which I hope we're not brushing over, the question which I hope that is staring us in the face is how? How on earth is this possible? These men, these sinners, standing in the presence of a holy God, they're not just standing even, they're sitting in his presence. You don't sit in the presence of a holy God? How dare you? How is it possible? How can they have these signs of royalty on their heads in the very presence of the one who reigns? How? Well, the answer is union in Christ. I know I've said this before, but I need to say it again. The answer to every difficult theological problem is union in Christ. How does it work? It's our union in Christ. Now, the principle is one that was taught way back in in John chapter 17, if you remember back that far, where Christ is giving his high priestly prayer, and it says in John 17, 21, that they all may be one, as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, and they also may be one in us. That's union, you see. They may be one in the very same way. Now, we know, of course, that we don't become God. Of course not. But what Christ is saying, in the, the same degree of unity that I have with the Father, that's what my people are going to have with me, union in Christ. That's the principle, and the implications are these. We get what he gets. We have what he has. In 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be, but we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him. We shall be like him. We speak of growing in Christ's likeness, and we, we do so in a kind of blithe, offhanded way, but please don't. Being Christ-like, becoming like him, means possessing the most important, eternal, essential attribute of God, the one thing that is being proclaimed over and over and over throughout all eternity, and that is his holiness. It is no no, uh, off-handed thing to share in his holiness. And it's certainly no off-handed thing to share in his sovereignty. But that's what we have. We have what he has. We shall be like him. We shall reign with him, as it says in Ephesians 2.5. 
Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved and raised up, up together and made us to sit together in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Sit together in, heavenly pla- in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. Again, sitting means to reign. When Christ rose again from the dead, he ascended up into heaven and he sat down on the right hand of the Father. And he says, we get to sit down along with him. We're going to reign. And he's going to make us holy. Again, a a passage which I think we can all too easily get used to and forget. Its incredible significance is in Ephesians 5, speaking about husbands and wives and the way we relate to one another. It says, husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, Glory. Why is it glorious? Why is God glorious? It's His holiness. Why are we glorious then? Why are we a glorious church? Because of the holiness that Christ is giving to us. It's a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. We shall be perfectly, gloriously holy, just as Christ is Himself. Now, how do we apply these things? Four applications. The first of which is the most basic. If the solution to these things is union in Christ, the pathway to be in union with Christ is to believe. First thing you need to do is believe in Christ. You've got to do that. It's not much... You haven't earned anything. You haven't merited anything. But you must put your faith in Christ. When he says to you, I will make all these things yours. When he says, come with me and you'll reign. Come with me and I'll make you holy. Put your faith in me. Put your trust in me. Stop trying to do it yourself. You've got to believe him. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And that salvation is a complete salvation. But it doesn't exist apart from the faith from the trust that you exercise in Christ and the words that he says. You must believe that these things will be yours. And second, don't be anxious. And we cannot let this thing pass us by because it seems to be the the thing that the, the practical application that so much of Revelation is about because these churches are naturally fretful. You can imagine why. Why might they be anxious? Because of these problems that don't seem to have a solution. Because of this opposition from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Because of this persecution. Because of these things that we ourselves know all too well about. These things that seem to have no solution. Of a situation that seems to be darkening rather than getting better. And no doubt we can be anxious. We can be fretful. But John, well, more importantly, Christ himself, does not leave us there in these potentially fretful circumstances. He begins with this picture of this serene sovereignty of of 
this one who sits upon the throne. And he reiterates some element of that sovereignty in the letters to the churches. He speaks to our trying situation, and then before he speaks to any further trials or persecutions yet to come, because that's what so much of the book is going to be about, then he gives us yet another picture of his sovereignty, closing in the final picture of his ultimate triumph, and we along with him. It's important. The material keeps coming and coming and coming. Christ reigns. Things are going to be bad. Christ reigns. Things are going to be bad. Christ reigns. And that's the end of the story. And things won't be bad after that. But your situation doesn't make any sense unless you understand that. And the application for them and for us is we cannot be anxious. Do not be anxious because Christ is on the throne. He must reign and he knows it. And how silly would it be? You can't even imagine Christ being fretful and anxious, can you? You think that's blasphemous. Because he knows he must reign. But now we do too. And you know what else? Not only he must reign, but we must reign also. Therefore, what sense does it make for us to be fretful? It doesn't. Don't be anxious. Thirdly, be holy. That's what it says, you know. We speak of the holiness of God. We say that above all, that's what's being revealed to us, the holiness of God. And that's the basis then for our own holiness. In Leviticus, in Leviticus, Leviticus 20, 26, And you shall be holy to me, for I, the Lord, am holy, and have separated you from the peoples, that you should be mine. I'm making you my people. I'm separating you. That's the, the basis of holiness is God's holiness. I'm holy. And then the mechanism for that holiness is separation. I'm separating you to myself, a different, separate people. You're not going to be like the world. You're going to be different. As it says in Leviticus 11.44, I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore consecrate yourselves, for you shall be holy, for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourself. And this, this course, in the moment, it's speaking of food purity laws. But the picture is much bigger than that. For I am the Lord who brings you out of the land of Egypt to be your God, the work of redemption. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. You see then the connection. Holy God, holy people. It works, by the way, in reverse. We were recently at the British Museum. And it came to me as we were going around these ancient civilizations and seeing these artifacts that the great majority of these artifacts had something to do with pagan idolatry. Sometimes it was about the debauchery and sensuality that went around with that pagan worship, but mainly it was about the false gods that they served. And some of these things were clearly demonic. There's no doubt. You could see it. The gods they depicted, you see, of these, these cultures were vile and monstrous. The priests who served them were vile and wicked, and the people who worshipped them were just like the gods that they served, vile and wicked. It all works together. It's all of a piece. But you, Christian, praise God, have not been consigned to the fate of having to live that way. You do not serve some vile, immoral, pagan god. You have been delivered from that. You serve a holy god who is high and lifted up, who is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look at wickedness. So why should we? 
Do not contemplate wickedness in your mind. Do not make provision for the flesh. Do not be like those who serve these wicked, demonic, vile gods. Act like you serve a holy God. Believe that he has consecrated you to himself. And understand that you shall be perfectly holy in the future. And it makes every sense then to be on that pathway now. So be holy, for God is holy. Fourthly and finally, worship the Lord in his holiness. Of course, we cannot forget that the picture here is about heavenly worship. And our worship is in some way patterned after that worship. And the thing is, what is leading them to worship? What is, what is the, the motor behind their worship? And the answer is God's holiness. It's his holiness. Now, ever the cry comes, it's not just our generation, but for many generations, make the church more like the world and people will come. Make the music more like the things that we hear on the radio every day and people will come. Make the style of preaching more like a sort of coffee shop conversation. And the content more like what we'd have in the media. And certainly get rid of, talk about Christ, yes, and salvation, but please don't talk about sin and hell and wrath and the blood and cross and the atonement of those things. So creepy. People don't like them. They're offensive. Well, for a moment, I just want you to think, what is the implication of that Impulse. Nobody's going to say it. Probably people don't even think that have that conscious thought. But is it not the case? Is it not the case? Make God more like us. Is it not the case of, I don't want to talk to that holy God. It makes me so uncomfortable. I don't want to hear from him. We want something a little bit more comfortable and familiar. Again, that's what it says in in Exodus 20.19. They trembled and stood far off and they said, You speak with us in here, but let not God speak with us lest we die. Or even as the men of Beth Shemesh said, as they encountered this holy God and they understood the implications of his sovereignty and his holiness, And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? Get it away from us. Get it away from us. That's the true meaning of holier than thou, by the way. That's that's what it's saying. The people say, Get this God away from me. That's what it's talking about. Why did those Egyptians, for instance, going back to the British Museum just for a minute, Why did those Egyptians, who had not merely the evidence of the invisible God that God gives to everyone inside their conscience, they know he exists, and that's clearly manifested in creation around them, and who for 400 years also had the people who knew the one true and living God living in their midst, in their country, why then did they still choose to make some demon-headed God and worship them? Because they don't want a holy God. Why is it that the Greeks and all their advanced mathematics and philosophy that we still study today, 
Why did they yet want gods who did things that would have gotten them arrested even then in that very permissive society? Gods who were even wicked, more wicked than they were. They didn't want a holy God. They wanted a God like them. Well, if that's the sort of thing that inspires the world, the unsaved world, to worship, how much more so should not the holiness of God propel us to worship the one true and living God who has given us a new heart to love him, given us a new heart to want and desire holiness and to appreciate holiness and to see it in its perfection and beauty, how much more should that propel us to worship? And so it is. And throughout Revelation and throughout the Bible, when we come into contact with the Holy God, it propels us to worship. And that's why it says in First Chronicles 16.29, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. That is certainly my prayer for us.